Hello, and welcome to another Sports Next Door podcast. My name is Owen. Today is Sunday, October 23rd, and I'm joined, as I always am, by my neighbor, Max. How's it going, my friend? Doing well. That question always hits a little different on a Sunday. It feels like the end of the week, a start of a new one. Uh, this past week, sports have been filling my schedule like they haven't in a long, long time. Like going back years, I almost want to say uh, something about the way my schedule has lined up. Like there's always other stuff going on in life enough to kind of make it hard to carve out the proper time. But with the school schedule, it's lined up really well to have something on almost at all times to the point where I don't even feel bad taking some time off. Uh, how are you doing? Doing well, man. Like you said, the sports equinox we had on Friday. Uh, for those in North America, that is baseball, basketball, football, or not football, uh, hockey, all happening at the same time. We get it today as well. Baseball, basketball, hockey, and football happening. Uh, not to mention, of course, UFC on Saturday, tennis over the weekend. We had some Formula One action. Sports left, right, and center. October is a fantastic month for sports fans, and we've been consuming just as much as possible. So my life has been a lot of sports, and it was a good weekend for me to try and catch up uh, after after a long week at work. So I'm excited to jump in for, to it because we have a ton to get through, uh, including football, fan cave, combat corner, basketball, hockey, tennis, baseball, a little bit of each, as we like to call it, the, uh, the buffet of, of sport talk here on the podcast. But I know you have a couple things you wanted to bring up first before we jump into the sports. There is only so many hours in the day I can watch sports and some of those others I have to spend on Twitter and they have me with a few things to get off my mind. Uh, firstly, I just want to peg the official sports next door position on throwing liquefied vegetables on art as negative. I don't know if you saw so like two weeks ago, some people threw a can of soup on a Van Gogh. Today or yesterday, it was tomatoes on a Monet. It's Luckily, the paintings seem to be fine. Uh, they like then glue their hands to a wall and start putting out a manifesto about climate change, poverty stuff. It's ridiculous. The one has nothing to do with the other. It's the de potential destruction of art that's meant so much to millions and millions of people. Like one of the bestest things of humanity, there's just really no connection between the like complicated um, developing world, burning large amounts of fossil fuel, largely due to the greed and capitalism of first world Western societies at a level of population that we really can't wrap our heads around. Um, that's all I've got to say on that. It sucks. Please stop it. They do uh, have the coverings on the paintings, though. So yeah, that's why I'm saying luckily no damage. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's an extreme measure. I think the longer we go, the more I'll tilt towards agreeing with the so-called extremists now. Uh, but for now, yeah, uh, stay away, stay away from the Monets. It, like I, I'm not against. It's just there's better places to channel that energy. We also have this one. Sort of gets into the sporting world. The match of the year, the piece of lettuce versus Liz Trust. In what ends up not being a nail biter, the lettuce comes out victorious. Uh, the long and the short of it is um, the UK has had kind of three disastrous conservative premiers in a row or prime ministers in a row, each one on outdoing the last. Theresa May 
very unpopular, almost loses to Jeremy Corbyn, who's got some ridiculous ideas. Uh, Boris Johnson replaces her due to the Tories not really liking her. Uh, he's like the UK version of Trump, kind of, like more posh, more quote-unquote culture, uh, still total narcissistic, manic, incompetent guy who gets ousted for being a jerk and sucking. Uh, they replace him with Liz Truss, who campaigns on who campaigns on like this Thatcher like Reaganomics trickle down economics. Uh, the line that I kept seeing over Twitter is in a year where energy companies are making ridiculous, ridiculous, ridiculous profits off of the energy shortages, like multiplying by five, six, seven times. She was saying she refused to tax them for it. Uh, and put out this plan that would reduce taxes on the rich and like cut uh, welfare, uh, literal trickle down economics. And it was the most unpopular thing like in the political world in the UK period. It got shot down so quickly. Uh, that was when the resignation watch really took up steam. And the UK just does this thing they did with Johnson as well, where like members of the party just keep stepping down and resigning. Uh, and eventually they don't, the leader doesn't have enough competent people in office to run the government and they have nowhere left to go. <laughs> Lettuce timer was so brilliant. Uh, I could not laugh at it and mention it, but uh, it ties in very happily with the broader society commenting on its view or society's referendum on that particular tax position which i love to see um, that's it that's all the non-sports i've talked got all right that means we go to football fan cave in our first stop on the sports buffet little uh, appetizer for everyone as we are still in the midst of nfl action on sunday but i'll start with thursday where the Arizona Cardinals get a much-needed win. They get two pick-sixes off of Andy Dalton in uh, in about a minute's time. And Max, I don't know if you saw the camera angle of the slow-mo of the Cardinals player diving into the end zone with Andy Dalton facing the other way, walking off the field. Uh, that, was, that was poetry. That was art in itself. But however much the uh, win meant to the Cardinals, they still look quite dysfunctional uh kyler and and cliff kingsbury yelling at each other on the sideline after a couple of uh miscommunications on the plays and so uh one one step forward two steps back there for arizona as they try to catch up to uh san francisco and the rams just ahead of them in in the standings moving on to sunday it is the end of an era question mark uh for two of the greatest quarterbacks that have ever touched the field tom brady and aaron Rodgers losing their respective games to vastly inferior opponents tampa bay losing to the carolina panthers who had just traded away oh. christian mccaffrey on thursday in a blockbuster deal to san francisco they lose 21 to 3 not only a close loss but a pretty resounding one uh, and did not look good in that game and on the other side the packers losing to the washington commanders I believe it's four straight losses for the Packers now. Wow. Has them at three and four on the season. And yes, looks like the game is starting to pass these guys by a little bit. They look old and slow and they don't want to get hit, which means they're releasing the ball early or to only targets that they trust. But teams know that they only have two people they're looking out for on the field and they're really stopping those people in their routes. And so... 
Brady and Rodgers on retirement watch now for the rest of the season, unless they can turn things around. Another big one here, Cincinnati Bengals are now back. That is back-to-back weeks where Jamar Chase has gotten really involved in the offense. They're starting to get that pixie dust back uh, that they had in their Super Bowl run. Luckily for me, I was on the receiving end of that in fantasy. We'll get to that in a sec, but the Bengals, Joe Burrow had over 300 yards by halftime and three touchdowns and chase caught two of those Boyd had the other uh, and the Bengals were just rolling and, and Atlanta is a great garbage time team but they were just simply unable to keep up with the Cincinnati offense today and so a big win for the Bengals as they chase down Baltimore at the top of the division there in the AFC North the New York Giants Max keep winning they're on to six and one here They take down the Jaguars. They go into the fourth quarter down in that one, but pull it out and they just keep rolling. So they're three away from a 500 season. (laughs) Guaranteed. Yes. For the, and that would be the first one. What since 2013, I believe. So the giants big time turnaround for them. And they're going to keep pushing momentum because uh, the Dallas Cowboys also beating the Detroit Lions. And that means that things are very tight at the top of this NFC East division, right? You have, of course, the Philadelphia Eagles undefeated at six and oh, and then the Giants at six and one, the Cowboys five and two and the commanders three and four. So not, not a, unforgivable record there at the bottom of the division but the nfc east is looking to be quite formidable after being the most mediocre division for the last eight years uh and so big turnaround for the nfc east looking forward to more divisional games between those teams as uh as we move forward here into the middle uh third of the season fantasy mvp of course has to go to tyler boyd who gets around 30 fantasy points I benched Keenan Allen for him at the last second this morning because I wasn't sure if Keenan Allen was going to play. He was questionable coming into the week, and, and Tyler Boyd rewarded me with a with a 60-yard touchdown as well as uh, finishing, I think, with around 150 receiving yards and nearly 30 fantasy points, so a great option there to put in the flex. Thank you, Tyler, for the fantasy W this week. And just taking a quick look at the afternoon slate here, The Kansas City Chiefs are going to spoil McCaffrey's arrival to San Fran. Seattle looks like they're in a great spot to beat the LA Chargers. And the Denver Broncos are losing to the Jets. And Chicago and New England will play on Monday night. And Sunday night here will be Pittsburgh-Miami. So don't really need to watch either of those games. (laughs) But to keep my Monday streak alive, I think I'm on a hotter heater now. Uh, We'll go with the New England Patriots taking Monday Night Football. And that's going to do it for Football Fan Cave. Other piece of that was finally watched an Arsenal game today because I was jumping on the bandwagon. Was was a fan when I was much, 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 much younger. Uh, They've been bad for a while now, and they're finally having a good season. They've been winning all the games I haven't watched. Finally watched one, and they tie Southampton. So, uh, sorry, Arsenal, fellow Arsenal supporters, (laughs) I will stop watching again so they can keep the ball rolling. Still top of the table, though. Still top of the table. All right. uh, Let's move on here. Max, combat corner. Big one this weekend. UFC 280 crowns a new lightweight champion, Islam Makashev, like there was never any doubt. And I'm going to go for a pretty bold statement here. 
Rewriting the division, since the moment Khabib retired, this has been the best guy in the division. He was uncrowned until now. They just made it official. I don't care if he had any top five wins or not. Uh, that's why this win was kind of so divisive in the MMA world. The people who have watched Oliveira just triumph over all so much chaos in the octagon, especially through the last three fights. He had this feeling of invincibility uh, against all these established top guys. The UFC always has its divisions in this way where it's very hard to climb to the top. But once you get there, you end up even coming off a loss. You fight other guys at the top. That's why you see like Oliveira beat Chandler, Chandler fights Gaethje, Gaethje beats Chandler, then Gaethje fights Oliveira, and that like Poirier in there as well. And now Poirier and Chandler are going to fight. So watching Oliveira come through all these guys who have these like one through five numbers on their name, uh, someone like Islam who hadn't fought anyone in the top five, some people were like, he, he's not at that elite level. He hasn't fought anyone there. And then other people who have been watching this guy for seven years know he's been at that level for a long time. And it's just no one with those numbers next to his name would fight him. But this was, even with those expectations, a surprising level of dominance. Uh, like Oliveira was supposed to be this wild card who was kind of not going to fear anything and able to hang tight and still be dangerous while being threatened. 10 seconds into the fight, oh, Islam clocks him with the right hand straight through. Charles is down, and through the rest of the fight, you don't see that stand-up that he brought against Poirier, against Gaethje, against guys who, on paper, are more of a knockout threat on the feet. I thought it was really interesting Charles pulled guard a minute later into the fight, because if you're going to get a leg, an arm bar, some sort of leg submission, your best chance is while it's dry, so why not? get a feel for the grappling while you have your best chance for a submission and then you can game plan the rest of the fight off of how that goes he gets one triangle attempt up that looks interesting for 10 20 seconds but makashev of course stayed patient didn't do anything crazy found his moment to slip out before it got locked in too tight the rest of that grappling exchange he stays very much in the middle keeps both hands tight to the uh, center and Oliveira eventually finds nothing so scrambles up to, to his feet he doesn't try and initiate the ground again he's more careful on the feet because Makashev is coming forward and when Oliveira gets too close he's tying him up in a clinch finding a trip pushing him against the cage finding the angle to pick him up and take him down and just staying very safe grinding on him uh, and it just suffocated Oliveira. Like I said, none of that wildness, uh, very reserved. He, he just wasn't landing those kind of, yeah, he puts his head straight up, leaves his chin exposed, but he gets in there with those hooks and his range and his timing is so good that he's able to get away with those difficult or those vulnerabilities he's exposing himself to. And then pretty early in the second round, he finally does open up uh, people. I guess he did open up the first strike of the fight with kind of like a switch leg kick but then the second wild kick he throws a kind of double fly knee attempt makashev just kind of parries the chest away and then as Oliveira lands he lands this clean clean hook that drops him again and Oliveira, he's like wired himself when he drops he goes down he has his guard open and he invites the guy to the floor and every time he got dropped against Gaethje, against Poirier, 
uh, not against Chandler. That one was a little different, but he went, he assumed that position and Poirier and Gaethje watched and thought about it and waited and Oliveira got his bearings and got back up. The fight continued. And that's where so much of that invincibility he had going for him came from. But this time, Makhachev drops him and he gets right on top of him in the half guard, locks up an arm triangle, and he locks it up so tight, like before Oliveira even has his bearings, that all he has to do is slip his legs out to mount and the pressure gets Oliveira tapping in five seconds. So submitting like a Brazilian jiu-jitsu legend, the guy with the most finishes, the most submissions in UFC history, in the second round, taking no damage on the feet. One submission attempt for Oliveira that Makashev handles perfectly. Like a fight against a guy who made every fight a sloppy, both guys get hurt, wild brawl where he mastered the chaos and came on top. Uh, Makachev passes the test with flying colors, not a scratch on him. As I said at the outset, this guy has been and is the number one lightweight in the world. And there was talk this week going in of like, oh, if Islam, if Charles wins, I, I think that trumps Khabib's legacy, which had a lot of merit and was kind of cr- not something I thought we'd be thinking about for five to 10 years. And the reason that was happening is Khabib's title reign was so short. Uh, looking at some of the other relative reigns we've seen in the UFC, that even with that level of dominance, once someone starts passing that reign, people are going to start to ask questions. We have the opportunity for that at a much, much, much more extended version. And I'm so excited for it in this division. It seems like it's going to be Volkanovski next, which is a bit of a shame for Dariush, as I'll touch on briefly. That's still going to be a hell of a fight. Uh, Makashev, I think, is going to be a massive favorite. And I'm hoping to see it open up a really exciting scary time in the lightweight division because this is a test that i still like six years later and i still don't know what the answer is other than a lucky shot and these guys a makashev a habib even an usman when they're climbing no one wants to fight them once they're at the top that's when the whole division gets to the blackboard and starts planning how can we beat this guy so i'm so excited for that chapter in the ufc some quick other notes from the card. TJ J. Dillashaw continues to give fans a reason to just hate him. I don't know if you heard about this, though. Nope. So, steps into the fight, throws a kick at Sterling. Sterling catches the kick, trips him up, has him down on the ground. And you see Dillashaw wincing really badly instantly. And about 30 seconds in, you realize Dillashaw's arm is compromised. He can't get up on it. He can't defend with it. Uh, he's just in the corner getting pounded on by Sterling, and he can't really defend it. And it feels like the fight could stop any second. Dillashaw manages to like scramble, turn, avoid, even finds his way to his feet in the last 60 seconds. You just kind of watched him like get through a beating. Uh, you realize his shoulder's been dislocated, and that's why he can't put pressure on it to stand up. And you, you feel like, oh, how unfortunate. What a warrior. He goes back to his corner. And between what his corner's saying and what the ref's saying, you realize they knew this could happen. And it turns out, uh, the fight finishes in the next round. Dillashaw starts out on the feet. 
he doesn't even throw the arm. Like they pop the shoulder back into place, but he's not using it. He's not striking with it. So he's just striking with one hand. So it doesn't take that long for Sterling to figure it out, get another takedown. And this time he just works his way back and forth between attacking chokes, attacking uh, the ground and pound. Sterling looks like he has 10 pounds of muscle on Dillashaw as well. So cut easily manhandles him and it's just a mauling that is not competitive anyway whatsoever. Uh, so we learn after the fight that Dillashaw dislocated his shoulder in April and popped it back into place about 20 times throughout the rest of the training camp. And uh, he didn't participate in any of the training stuff during fight week because he knew it might pop out. I I'm not the kinesiologist or there is some connection between healing time and let like yeah. popping it back in and letting it heal before straining it again or it's going to pop out easier. Yeah, so there's six degrees of dislocation in a shoulder, uh, just like varying levels of ankle sprains and stuff like that. Um, and like you said, the clinical recommendation is to never pop your own shoulder in because you can do it improperly, and then it misaligns your muscle, your ligament, your nerves in your shoulder and can lead to long-term damage. Like you said, once you pop your shoulder out once, it's more likely to pop out again. Uh, so if something's happening 20 times, then it's extremely likely that he's going to go into a fight and, and pop it out again. So pretty much again, you nailed it right on the head is you have to make sure when you ha go and clinically get it popped back in, you have to strengthen it up again before you can use it. But no matter what you do, it's always going to be more likely to pop out because it has done so in the first place. Uh, so anyone out there who are, is popping their shoulder back into place, Again, de depends on the severity of the first time you dislocated it or the severity of when you're dislocating it, but generally do not do it yourself. Wait for a medical professional to do it for you. <laughs> I met this guy in Costa Rica who was like a surfer. He was into BMX, snowboarding, and he was who I was talking about when I said like and popped it back in 50 times. And yeah. what he told me was like however the first however many accidents, like 510, I think it was mostly BMX related. Uh, he'd always have to go to the hospital on like the fifth or sixth trip he was kind of like man you know can you just teach me to do that like i'm getting sick of having to come here every time so uh, i'm i'm not like <laughs> if you have a proclivity towards extreme sports uh chances oh, yeah. are it's gonna People happen. still do it and i would learn to do it properly but i would also say if you're going to learn to do it yourself also learn the exercises necessary to avoid popping it out. <laughs> anyway, it, it was such a funny, because like Dillashaw, a guy kind of most of the fan base feels pretty vehemently against, uh, like it's so hard to catch cheaters. When you do finally catch one, you kind of vent a lot more rage than just the single offense, I feel like. And watching him like fight through that first round, it felt like, oh, what a tough break. Like how unlucky he's still such a warrior. Maybe if he makes it through, but like they pop the shoulder back in and he still can't use it. That just speaks to how ridiculously compromised it was. So what was the game plan coming in? Like you have one chance at a high kick landing for a knockout. Like it was just such a waste of sterling's fight camp as a champion they could have pulled out given him another opponent um it, it's sort 
There is an element which as a worker, this is his job and he needs to step into the ring to get paid and it would be a letdown for him. But when you say it started in April, it kind of all my sympathy disappears. Like you had, this didn't happen the last week. This wasn't a one-time thing. The level of hope that was present of like, maybe we can get through this was non-existent. This was just such a waste. It's just a continuation of fighters, which is unsurprising, not knowing what's best for them, but their corners never speaking up and never shutting them down when they really, really should be. Uh, usually just for the fighter's health, but this time for the fans' sake as well. Uh, what a waste of a pay-per-view co-main event slot. Sort of made up for by the Peter O. Peter Yan, Sugar Sean O'Malley uh, fight before that, which Sugar Sean gets a very contentious split decision win. Uh, a really, really fun fight. It's This is where I really hate round scoring because the first round, it didn't feel like any real hard damage was thrown. Um, pretty mild feeling each other out round. I gave a mild advantage to Peter Yan. Second round where the fun really started. Oh, Sean clocks Yan. I think that's the first time I've seen in his UFC career, Peter Yan gets staggered like that. And then Yan, like he does this thing, he kind of like holds O'Malley's hands like he's trying to just play defense for a second and steps in, clocks him right back after being on Wobbly Street for 20 seconds uh, and then gets O'Malley down, kind of dominates the rest of the round, a mix of grap in the grappling world for a good two minutes and has some good striking moments. So that felt with the damage on the feet being like equal in those blows and the grappling, you could give it to Yan. Then the third round was just fireworks. Uh, O'Malley landed some hard shots and staggered Yon. Yon landed some hard ones back, but they didn't really stagger O'Malley. Yon again with some effective grappling, but it just felt like O'Malley landed so much more damage on Yon in that round than anyone else in the fight. So I felt like mild first round Yon, moderate second round Yon, big third round O'Malley. I, I don't rate the grappling of Yon, which didn't see submission attempts, uh, effective striking or anything that would really get him close to finishing the fight that highly compared to the damage that O'Malley was landing throughout the round. So like it, it was a fight where I absolutely wish there was a fourth and fifth round to see how that continued. But like it felt like Okay, O'Malley won, or Yon won on the cards, but O'Malley kind of won the fight for me. Uh, and then they give it to Yon, which, or excuse me, O'Malley, which I didn't see. A really fun fight. It definitely proved that Sean O'Malley is at the top of the division. Pierre de Yon's grappling is no joke, and he dealt with it. His striking, even scarier. Uh, and O'Malley was in there and like at that level. Uh, so some really fun fights in the future, I think, for Sean O'Malley. I don't, he might be one or zero away from a title shot. Uh, I think a, a lot of people have to take back at least what they said about being outclassed, uh, which I'm not, I, I think the Vera loss is really blemish on, on his ability. And the people using that to justify trashing him uh, were talking nonsense and just hating the ego. So 
I, I don't know about congratulations. I'm a big Piotr Jan fan and kind of disappointed about where his career trajectory goes from here because two losses in a row, but he still might be the best guy in the division. It's a weird spot. But yeah, the bantamweight division, always entertaining as of late. Uh, last note, Benil Dariush, it's a tragedy if he has to take another fight to get a title shot because seven, eight fights in a row now, uh, masterclass against a younger i guess only a little younger explosive more athletic grappler weathers the first round a lot of fun scrambling exchanges takes the gas out of him starts to get the advantage in the second round it's like gamero would explode put himself in these positions where he's at a bit of a disadvantage grappling but he has such technical knowledge and athleticism that once it's in the grappling world he can deal with it but dariush had the technical knowledge to use the advantageous position he had to nullify it. The explosions hurt Gamro's stamina, and then Dariush really takes over, starting the third, second round. Lots of huge knees, masterclass shutting the guy down. Uh, I don't care if he has to wait out the next Volkanovski-Makashev fight, give him the title shot after that. He doesn't need to fight anyone else to prove anything. Okay, we're going to get interrupted here somewhere. Uh, do you want to switch it now or go in for another five, six, ten? That might be smart to switch it out here. All right, we'll take a little break and be back momentarily. Ready to jump into the kind of meat and potatoes of the podcast, basketball and some hockey. Uh, three games in for most teams into the NBA season. And what are we at in hockey? Seven, eight games in. So something been on my mind this week, uh, prepping for this pod is how can we have any confidence in like a premature take versus no this is like a take that's going to be relevant for the whole season a lot of teams projected to not do well uh or projected to try and tank doing flawless and a couple teams we projected to do pretty well uh coming out the gate very very flat one in particular we'll get to uh, and in the hockey world as well, a couple thoughts. So I don't really have an answer for this other than like time will tell and prove. Do you have any method for as you're like looking at and uh, having impressions like, nah, that's erroneous or like this is going to be true all season? I think it's a process thing. And it comes from watching sports for a number of years. Uh, because there's always going to be teams that surprise you, right? Like the Celtics were 500 deep into December, and then they mm-hmm. made it to the NBA Finals. So it's hard to go extreme one way or the other, but there are things you can see that you're like, this is a stable thing that's been continuous from a previous season that's going to be in place um, that you can reasonably predict moving forward. And I think I have that kind of set. I mean, like off the top, just a good take is that the Pelicans are going 75 and seven. Like that's not an overreaction. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Riffing on what you said there, I'll give you two more examples from the start of the last season. The Wizards came out the number one team in the East and the Warriors came out the number one team in the West. Mm -hmm. The Wizards didn't make the playoffs. Uh, The Warriors obviously won it all. There, There are two times where three, five games in, you would have looked at what each team was doing. And if you gauged the same reaction, you would have been very, very right and very, very wrong uh, in two separate cases. 
uh, I guess, team identity and history and consistency. Small thing would have been the filter there you used to that would have gotten you the right answer. Yeah, it it's an interesting thing to jump into, and one of the things we're going to look at and try and parse through while we talk about the first bit of the season here. And I guess we got some major takeaways and overreactions, possibly underreactions, possibly. I do want to dive into a couple of teams here as we talk NBA. There's a numerous uh, number of avenues we can go to here, but I think it's best we start with the Toronto Raptors just because they are the the whole home team. Uh, They've started the season one and two. And with the unique bit of scheduling that the NBA has gone to this year with the kind of double games that they played that they really tried out uh, during the COVID season of, of 2020, 2021, uh, where they played a lot of back-to-backs. That is what they've incorporated here. So Raptors have Miami again tomorrow night, and then the Sixers in back-to-back games uh, before facing the Atlanta Hawks. So a, a not an easy next four games ahead. And starting the season one and two with some winnable games get dropped, but also the game they did win against Cleveland was a losable game. Raptors feel very much in the same spot that they were last year, where it's a team that is not going to blow teams out every night. And it's not a team that's going to get blown out. They're going to play with tighter margins, uh, less room for error, going to play a more chaotic style of basketball that leads to a lot of turnovers for both teams. Um, For the casual fan, probably not the most exciting thing, but I relish my team getting a defensive stop. So I've loved it so far and there's things that they need to build and improve on, but really the biggest one for me to start the season is Pascal Siakam. Looks so awesome. He looks so awesome building on all NBA third team last year. Uh, and, and he's off to a terrific start and just the motor he's grabbing rebounds at a high rate he's ever done in his career and his game just, he looks, it doesn't look surprising when the basketball goes in anymore. Even like when he was on his run last year, whenever he shoot the mid range or the three or some of the layups he would make, it always was like, wow, that went in. But now it, you actually expect it to go in, and that's a proven track record of him scoring and being that established guy now for a number of years. So I've loved what I've seen so far from Pascal. That's kind of my high-level one for the Raptors, Max. I don't know if you want to jump in here and, and add some notes. Yeah, it's been in, in – I'm basically just going with whatever my cable provider has on. So I, I think I get like a third of the Raptors games. Uh, so I got to see their home opener. Didn't get to see the Nets game as we had uh, Celtics 76ers. And then I was too tired after the Leafs and UFC and the, Le- the Raptors were losing too badly at the time against Miami for me to have any engagement in putting that one on. They were down by 20. I went to bed, nah, and woke up and saw the three-point uh, margin now of victory for the Heat. It, yeah. it was a larger margin of defeat than yeah. three. It, like the late comeback that was yeah. held off more yep. uh, yeah I, so I've gotten to watch a lot of Tatum and Brown uh, who I, I don't know if you can say they're exactly the like a Tatum is exactly the ceiling for Siakam he, like just the size and muscle mass difference is always gonna um, create a different playing style the main 
thing for Siakam I'm seeing is I just want to see like a little more feel on like when he can power through the double team and score and when he can knows to pass it out kind of selection there is something I'm really high on for those two guys on the Celtics that I, I like I said I just saw the home opener so in that one uh, I had a bit of dissatisfaction there but I'm 100% on board with the style of feel he's developing and the type of looks he wants to generate and how he free flows in his zone to create a shot uh, at that mid-range level. I'm in love with that game and I think it fits this team's playing style and identity so well. After the like ups and downs over the last three years, he really do- this really does seem like the year where he could lock in as it's not a question that this is an all-NBA guy and the franchise's number one option uh, that we run the offense through. I'm loving to see that. Yeah, uh, three games in it, one and two, um, Brooklyn, Miami, both good teams. Cleveland also, both all three teams kind of in the same stratosphere, I'd say. Uh, yeah, we win a tight one against the Cavs. We drop a tight one against the Nets. Uh, you had reservations for how this team was going to perform in the clutch time. So kind of 500 there, like more data to collect before I have a hard opinion one way or the other. Yeah, I fully expect them to take this game tomorrow against Miami because Nick Nurse is usually good at making adjustments. Uh, the It will be interesting to see how chippy this game gets with the... <laughs> Caleb Martin tackle or Cody Martin tackle on Christian Cologo uh, got rookied a little bit. That was an entertaining bit of a moment there, but um, I think the Raptors are going to hold their heads high and still waiting on Porter and and Birch to be full-time staples in this lineup. And then we'll Mm -hmm. really get a chance to see uh, what this team can do in its full-fledged version. Yeah. All the bench minutes feel pretty tough to watch right now. Knowing like we're skipping like guys seven and eight in the rotation and it's one yeah. through six nine ten or something on the court yeah uh, exactly these next notes are from a game six five six days ago so i'll go pretty briefly but uh suns fans get to rewrite history a little bit with the home opener win revenge against the Mavericks. Uh, I say they get to rewrite history because the first half looks like exactly where they left off game seven of the playoffs. The Mavs blow them up. I think they lead by 24 at one point before the Suns get it back down to 17. Uh, Somewhere in the third quarter, uh, some foul trouble for the Mavericks, a bit of Chris Paul taking advantage of that, and a bit of DeAndre not being in foul trouble, a bit of Devin Booker and the role players also stepping up, and the Suns bring it back to within one. Christian Wood goes on a 16-point run. I don't know if you saw any of that, oh, but he was ridiculous. <laughs> he like hit a bank from three, yeah. <laughs> tried to play it off, and then went and took the next three, pull up like pure confidence and drained it. Uh, some heat check moments on that run for him. They really were able to run the offense through him late in that third quarter with Luca on the bench and get great non-Luca minutes with Luca on uh, the pick and fade, pick and roll option. Seems like exactly what they hoped for from Porzingis. Uh, they lose some size and still need to pick it, that up somewhere with him as a replacement. He's doing a lot of what fans thought hoped Porzingis could do for this franchise. And yeah. if he buys in defensively to where 
Jason Kidd got the rest of the team. Uh, this is going to be a very, very good fit. And I think Mavericks fans should be really excited. The end of this game, go though, pretty much all Suns. Uh, they bench Chris Paul. I haven't been following the Suns since this game, but no minutes for CP3 in the last 7-8. It's all campaign. Uh, Devin Booker and a bit of Damian Lee taking the ball up the floor. Booker, for most of those five minutes, doing all the heavy lifting. Uh, they just run a high screen and roll with eight and then one more. They run it like three, four times in the last four, few minutes and Booker making the right read every time. Uh, amazing floor generalship from him. At the same time, as much as it was Booker running it, the, the Suns felt deep. They felt like they whoever the ball got to, they could get a good look with in those last five minutes where it felt like the Mavericks just needed Luka, which gets a lot done. Uh, he managed to still hold up, keep it tied. Uh, I can't remember exactly what he did, but it was ridiculous uh, to get the lead. But Lee hit that contested mid-range fader after they doubled Booker on the last play, and the Suns get a very feel-good win there. Uh, mostly the damn Booker looks like a really good floor general, and uh, wow, Christian Wood might be a wonderful fit. My takes from this game. Yeah, and I think Chris Paul is getting that rest because they're going to put him on a pitch count this season. Consistently, he has broken down in the playoffs, so they need to get him rested early on. It's that, and he's at a level where you have to assess the performance game by game. He didn't do much offensively for this team other than the assist counts, but scoring-wise, the touch wasn't there. Uh, so he, Monty Williams kind of putting him on notice, that, like it's not a guaranteed start. If you're cold, we're not going to wait for you to heat up. We've got other guys we can plug in there. Yeah. So I think some synergy between those two ideas. Friday night, the Heat versus Celtics was a really fun game. The Celtics, I, I'm going to talk about a bit as an overview. They're 3-0 to start the season after these game notes. Uh, but as a team, it, they, it felt like they had such an advantage throughout this whole game. Brown and Tatum had the size and the speed to attack and get anything they wanted anytime. And the Celtics team is like already where some teams need 50, 60 games to get to in terms of ball movement, one more pass, getting the open look once they have one man beat in the half-court situation. But more turnovers to keep the Heat in check, some really bad foul trouble early in the third, and the Heat and the bonus pretty much throughout that quarter. Uh, let the Miami catch it up, keep it close. Also of note, uh, the plus-minus for Bam Adebayo in this game was everything. When he was off, the Celtics dominated. When he was on, he was plus double digits, at least through three quarters. Uh, so when he gets in foul trouble late in the third, the Celtics were able to even it up again. And then this fourth quarter, I, I don't think NBA fans are going to get tired of saying it for a long, long time. Who said Brown and Tatum can't lead a team to start them together? Throughout the first half of this fourth quarter, it's all Jalen Brown. Uh, just the shot, the drive, the kick, whatever he wants. The, the second handle he, looks a lot better compared to the finals, yep. And then the second he gets into foul trouble, it's all Jason Tatum. And I normally hate hero ball. If you take the drive and you get the double, you've won. You have good shooters on your team, kick it out. Tatum just does it with such confidence. Even when he misses, he chases his own rebound. He has the strength. Like, it's just so fun to watch. And he, he just anchored that 
those last five minutes of the fourth quarter by himself. Every possession uh, kept the heat. Uh, like I was so impressed. That was what they talk about when they talk about like top five elite, top three level play, uh, watching those last few minutes against a really good defensive team in Miami. So two notes on the Celtics. One, I think the fact that Adebayo gave them so much trouble in the plus minus, we are overreacting a little to this team without Williams. Let's wait until they have a run against a bunch of teams with good, solid centers and see how they fare. Uh, the turnovers, the foul trouble were an issue last playoffs, something they've always had to work on and something that is going to bite them. As we said in our preview, there's some like holes on this team that I think are going to be in trouble. But two, I think Jason Tatum top three MVP votes this season. Absolutely. That one does not feel premature. No. And it's the continuity of this team. And I think we've overrated how much value a coach has very early on here because the new coach has stepped in and brought a lot of the same execution and has been willing to go to this small ball uh, varying lineups really early on and rely on his top guys. And Malcolm Brogdon is new, but seems like he's been playing for this team forever. Like just, he's such a smart player. He fits in right away. Give uh, Missoula credit too, because it's a small adjustment, but it's worked like the speed that the small ball lineup plays with and attacks in like, half court or off a bucket and transition mm -hmm. has been so effective yeah. uh we'll, we'll see how teams adjust throughout the stretch but you, you can't throw out the whole system you can't rewrite everything if it ain't broke don't fix it and you're not doing too much to a team that just made the finals but picking one area trying to get change there and uh he gets maximum value out of that so a fantastic start for the celtics even if i don't think it'll get them to the number one seed touching on some other games here before we get to max's play of the week the new orleans pelicans start their season two and oh the hype train is off the rails it is run away jump on now while you still have a chance zion is back and looks very physically imposing he hasn't had that zion game yet but somehow finds a way to get to 20 points uh, in both of these games, even though not looking as great in the Charlotte one. But they put on 72 on Brooklyn in the second half of that home opener. We were talking about this off the podcast, but Zion, in comparison to like an Embiid, another physically dominant player in the league, Zion has very obvious faults in his defense. Like no one is saying he's a good defender. He's going to get blow by, blown by almost every time. And teams, when it gets down to it, are going to start attacking him more. But just offensively, the sets that they're running look so great. And they're running Zion handoffs for Ingram where he can roll, short roll and dish it out. Or then it's opening up two of the best mid-range scores in the NBA right now in McCollum and Ingram. And then... This is a part where I think they're going to drop some games, but the first two games of the season are against teams without a true center. And Jonas Valanciunas has been the best player for that Pelicans team. 30 and 17 in the second game, but he's all over the class. No one can move him. He's just a monster down there. And they have a ton of guys who can put the ball in the basket. And then Herb Jones and Jose Alvarado and Najee Marshall uh, have been stitching things together on the defensive side so far. I was really impressed by their ability to create turnovers against the Brooklyn Nets team in that first game. And while the big names and the scoring is going to obviously bring the hype train up, 
it's their ability to stay connected as a defense that's going to lead to this regular season success. And I liked what I've seen early on. I don't think they're going to be near the top of the Western Conference here and as we go along. And the 75 and 7 thing was a joke, but really, really high on the potential of this team as Zion's only going to get better as the season goes along. Other notes here, Paulo Bancaro looks like he's a 10-year vet. Uh, can't wait to watch his games this year. Just so smooth and and deceptively large. Uh, was already a big player, but the comparisons to Carmelo Anthony are apt in the smoothness of his game, the ability to make reads already in his very first game. Well, he's been over 20 points so far in the first two, uh, given not against like top, top teams. Uh Celtics. Or they played Celtics in the second one. Sorry, I'm thinking Detroit. Uh, but his poster dunk on Corey Joseph was electric and maybe the dunk of the year in the first game. He just looks so polished. And I think we underrated how great of a first pick he actually is. Uh, John Morant, <laughs> really, really fun and exciting. He had 49 uh, the other night in, in the Grizzlies win and and had the, the ceiling plays in overtime in their home opener against New York. Uh, and, and really his best two stats, despite all those points, were the two chase down blocks on, on Jalen Green. And then as well uh, in the New York game, I forget who it was on. He's just so phenomenal, exciting. Again, undervalued th- that what this grizzly system has like santi aldama and john conchar and their starting five and it's they don't miss a step like they just throw guys out there and they're going to play great minutes and john morant's going to take this team over the top uh, on that note can you name the five starting players for the spurs Keldon johnson devin vassell uh i want to say not bryn forbes Jakob purtle is in there yeah uh is Eubanks starting? I actually don't know either. I just think it's crazy that the team who's starting five, neither of us can name, just beat the 76ers. <laughs> yeah, the Spurs, man. That is actually another story I want to talk about is the Spurs and the Jazz, two teams in the tankathon, uh, have had great starts to their season because they have they have too many dudes who can play. Yeah. Like, gonna, it's not like a OKC or a Houston or a Detroit of the past where they just threw out bums. Like Utah has Markinen, Vanderbilt, Clarkson, Saxton, uh, Walker, Kessler, Olinick, guys who have played pretty significant roles as role players in the past, but they're going to work hard and play ball. And Danny mm. just got his work ahead of him to ship some of those guys out the door. <laughs> I mean, they make it pretty easy on him uh, putting attractive price tags on themselves with this play. Yes. Uh, Adam Silver with some comments, I think yesterday about being saying like, we've talked to teams and uh, told them no tanking. Uh, but like, what are they going to do? Uh, he, he said they've tried to talk about relegation, but it's literally impossible. I don't know what kind of penalties they can impose to make it not worth it to try and change your franchise for the next 15 years. I'm expecting half of this Jazz team to get shipped out before the trade deadline. Yeah, some some valuable assets out there. Last two notes from me. I'm going to wrap things up shortly. Damian Lillard. Oh, is back, back to back forty plus games. Back to back forty plus games gets the Lakers to zero and three. We'll have plenty of time to talk about the Lakers on upcoming podcasts. Believe me, um, and Giannis, of course, reimposing himself as well. Forty four points on eighty one percent shooting. 
in his most recent outing. And it wouldn't be game time without a game-winning go-ahead three-pointer. Uh, just to have to mention that that was a part of that performance against the Lakers. Yes, I love to see it. But that not my highlight of the week. My highlight of the week, uh, Nikola Jokic earning the Denver Nuggets the win against the Golden State Warriors. I tried to write this down in my notes as specifically as I could because the sequence, the score and the sequence is so important to how amazing this play was. So the Nuggets up uh, 124 to 121 against the Warriors. The Warriors, I think, just... Yeah, the Warriors just having gotten a bucket. So three-point lead. The inbound comes to Bones Highland, who's expecting the foul, and instead a double team comes. So he's already dribbled himself into a corner, has the ball on his offhand. Uh, Jokic on the other side of the paint. Uh, Highland waits a couple seconds too long, tries to dribble out, doesn't have the space, goes for a bounce pass as it comes through the middle of the paint. Uh... I think it was Jordan Poole, doesn't matter, reads the pass, runs in, intercepts it before it gets to Jokic, puts the layup in. Suddenly, it's a one-point lead for the Nuggets, who have to inbound the ball. They just missed free throws their last time up the line. All the momentum is going Warriors. Uh, this game went from almost in the bag to you are have the momentum going against you, and if you mess up this next sequence, you are going to lose. Jokic, without missing a beat, grabs the ball out of the basket, steps onto the free throw line. Tom Brady levels of quarterbackness in getting the ball three quarters up the court and dropping it perfectly into Bruce Brown's hands, who has a wide open lane to the basket to dunk it and put his team up 126 to 123. This happens in less than five seconds, from the pass being thrown, intercepted into the basket to being in Jokic's hand. Uh, this situation goes from, I think the Nuggets just probably put themselves in a situation to lose the game, to having the game secured again, with ridiculous quarterback levels of athleticism, uh, the playmaking, one of my favorite parts of the game, the, this was beautiful to watch and uh my Can we my... make him the quarterback of the broncos please? <laughs> but the the consequence the fact that it basically won the game for the nuggets in my eyes the three quarters length of the court perfect accuracy uh and the fact that it was a pass and the decisiveness and instantaneousness with which it all happened play of the week hands off to nicole Jokic. oh it's going to do it for basketball. Uh, congrats to the Philadelphia Phillies headed to the World Series. The Fightins are going on. Uh, said is the word of the month here for Phillies fans. It's a Philly thing. I don't really understand it, but they're moving on. And uh, the Houston Astros up 3-0 on the Yankees. Cannot wait to see New York eliminated uh, and will lead to an Astros-Phillies final. And it's very obviously Philadelphia. Somehow that is the team that everyone's going to be rooting for. As a I city, love... not typical, but the Phillies yeah. themselves are a very, very Cinderella story team that you're going to love to cheer on. I love how like everyone cheering for the Astros against the Yankees, but then that instantly flips. Yep. And then everyone There's cheering no against the Astros. There's no winner in the ALCS. There's no yeah. winner. Yeah. 
Uh, and then quick notes here before I jump off the call and Max will finish things up. Uh, Nick Robertson should be a member of the Toronto Maple Leafs full-time now. He showed it after some great play on both ends against the Stars and scoring the OT winner. And the Leafs have responded well since their uh, embarrassing loss to the Arizona Coyotes. And hopefully they can keep that moving as we uh, go along here into the season. Yeah, I uh, had this whole bit ready to say about how the Leafs keep giving up the go-ahead goal, and I really want to see them end a first period better. And then they sort of make me bite my words by giving up the go-ahead against the Jets, then getting it back like two minutes later. And uh, it, it doesn't feel like they were trailing really in that game. And that's what I want. I just don't want to see this team playing from behind consistently. Uh, they went out, they got the lead in the second, played a great third. Hats off to Ilya Samsonov for uh, some excellent goaltending. Oh, checking out here. Uh, we'll just go very, very briefly into the tennis world. Uh, three 250 level events. Uh, Holger Rune, I think, winning his first title ever against Stefano Tsitsipas. Lorenzo Musetti taking out Matteo Berrettini in Naples. So two staples in the ATP top 10 getting beat in finals by next generation players. And then love to see it. Felix Auger-Aliassime gets the win over Sebastian Corda in Antwerp. That is back-to-back -back 250 titles in two weeks for Felix, his third of the year. Uh, once that cherry was popped back in February, the finals curse really seems blown out. Uh, next week, this week, really, a 500-level event for Felix that's going to have a bit more of a who's who's list of name competing, such as world number one, Carlos Alcaraz, as well as Casper Rudd, among others. So excited to see if Felix can continue his winning ways there. Uh, two 500-level events going on on the ATP Tour, so hopefully some notes on that next pod. Got four minutes left, but O's already checked out. He's got all his notes in. So that's about where we're going to wrap up the pod. If you've made it this far, thank you so much for listening. This one going a little longer with a full buffet of sports to cover. Hope you enjoyed it and get off to your week the right way. Sports Next Door signing out.